Both of my siblings were born at home in Connecticut in the 80s. I was seven when my sister was born and nine when my brother was born. And that really shaped my worldview. It's where I thought babies came from was the next room over. As someone who has given birth at home twice and with, with midwives, I feel like there's a way that I touched my power that completely transformed me on like a cellular level and 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 has allowed me to, to do this work. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, on health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Birthing centers provide a personalized alternative to hospital care and have shown superior outcomes for mamas and babies. A 2016 Cochrane review of over 17,000 women found higher rates of spontaneous vaginal birth, lower preterm birth, and lower perinatal loss with midwifery models of care. In 2018, the Mapping Integration of Midwives Across the U.S. study found states with better integration of midwives showed improved perinatal measures in every category cesarean section, preterm birth, neonatal death, and breastfeeding. In 2018, again, the Strong Start study, looking at over 40,000 Medicaid recipients, found birth centers were associated with a 40% decrease in cesarean risks, 26% reduction in preterm birth, 20% lower low birth weight risk, two-time increase in VBAC or vaginal birth after cesarean success, and a 21% overall lower healthcare cost. In 2019, giving voice to mothers showed that midwifery and out-of-hospital birth was associated with fewer reports of mistreatment or discrimination, particularly among BIPOC birthing people. While there are now more than 384 freestanding birthing centers in the United States, 98% of all births take place in a hospital, though most births could happen safely in other settings. The U.S. has staggeringly high infant and maternal mortality rates when compared to other countries, and one factor in this that's been pointed to is the overrepresentation of OBs in maternity care relative to midwives. In most other countries, midwives outnumber OB-GYNs vastly, and primary care plays a central role in prenatal and postpartum care. Birthing centers allow women to birth in a home-like environment where they can feel secure and supported. The midwifery model of care is woman-centered and grounded in relationships, and birth centers have the potential to serve as a hub for cultivating community relationships that extend beyond childbirth and the immediate postpartum period. Despite years of evidence about the incredible outcome, safety, and cost-effectiveness of midwives, midwifery care is still not the standard for pregnancy and birth in the U.S., and access to birthing centers remains limited, and they are challenging to open. As COVID showed us, there's a significant shortage of birthing centers to turn to, an important option on its own, and an important option for women who prefer not to, or for a variety of reasons are unable to birth at home. My guests today are two powerful and visionary leaders who are slated to open a birth center in 2023 that will serve families in the Boston area. Nashira Barill, MPH, is the daughter and great-granddaughter of midwives who midwifed her children at home, and she's the founder and executive director of Boston's Neighborhood Birth Center, the city's first community birth center poised to open in 2023. In 2020, she co-founded Birth Center Equity, a national strategy to grow community birth infrastructure by rematriating full-spectrum capital to birth centers led by people of color. With a master's degree in maternal and child health from Boston University's School of Public Health and nearly 20 years of experience designing and implementing public health strategies to advance racial equity, Nishira brings a structural analysis and somatic practice to the design and implementation of public health strategies that advance justice and equity. She's worked at the Boston Public Health Commission, Harvard School of Public Health, and most recently, Human Impact Partners. 
Catherine Rushforth, Certified Nurse Midwife, is the Policy Director for the forthcoming Neighborhood Birth Center. Catherine was the Associate Chief of Midwifery at Mass General Hospital. At MGH, Catherine successfully spearheaded programs to address the social determinants of health and expand family planning services to community health centers. Catherine was among the first midwives to be named faculty at Harvard Medical School, and she is a past president of the Massachusetts affiliate of the American College of Nurse Midwives, ACNM, and currently serves as a legislative co-chair for Mass ACNM. Catherine has also served on the Medical Advisory Board for the Mass WIC program and NARAL. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me. I know you're so busy right now getting all this going. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're really, really thrilled for this opportunity and what an what a introduction. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. Well. It's the least I could say. So our conversation, I want to give folks who are listening a little bit of background on how we got introduced and came together. What, about six, eight weeks ago, I received an email asking me if I could come to Boston that following Wednesday. It was like, I think I got the email on like a Thursday or Friday. Could I come to Boston that following Wednesday to give public testimony about the importance of birthing centers? And um, that was in the context of the North Shore birthing center facing closure. And unfortunately, the timing was such that I was already scheduled out and I couldn't make that happen. So the response email was, could I give written testimony about the closure of the birthing center and the importance of why we need birthing centers? And that was the context in which I got introduced to both of you. So our conversation today is really much more expansive. And, you know, as we were talking before, our big goal is to really create a sea change in how people birth in this country. And one really important part of that sea change is more midwives, more birthing centers. And in my experience, the biggest way to create sea change in medical culture is to actually educate the consumer, the birthing people who then create the demand. And sadly, that creates sometimes the economics in the medical model that then opens the door. So first, before we even jump in all of that, I want to hear each of your stories and how you got to the birthing work that you're doing now. I love to start with my story. So thank you for the invitation. <laughs> I think that when I think about kind of where I am uh, sitting right now and the work that I'm doing to open this birth center, there's a couple kind of moments in my life that have really shaped and prepared me for this. One is uh, the birth of my sister when I was seven years old. Um, both of my siblings were born at home in Connecticut in the 80s. I was seven when my sister was born and nine when my brother was born. And that really shaped my worldview. It's where I thought babies came from was the next room over um, and with midwives. And, you know, I was putting out chips and salsa for them early in the morning um, as a kid. You know, I, I went all the way through college and probably well into my 20s before I visited a friend in the hospital after giving birth. So that was just kind of like an origin for me. Um, and I think is really different from the majority of folks experience, um, certainly as a child, but even even uh, as adults. And then I got a degree in women's studies and began working in public health and found myself spending, you know, more than a decade at the Boston Public Health Commission, which is our city's health department. And there I was really steeped in racial inequity uh, data and social determinants of health and trying to think about strategies inside and outside of government to uh, to make change, structural change. And it was at that time that I also, you know, was pregnant and navigating home birth for myself. And so really feeling like I was really clear about uh, my identity as a Black woman and living in the neighborhoods in Boston where we were just showing map after map of bad outcomes related to concentration of, of folks of color and all of the ways that structural racism uh, disadvantages us and, and the physical spaces uh, that we occupy. And then had enough resources and education of my own to advocate for a uh, home birth on my own. And so it was in in that moment of having my, a really powerful home birth experience and feeling 
kind of alone in my social circle and in a broader context of folks who had navigated home birth. And then, you know, I am a student of public health here and a, um, a mentee of Dr. Joanna Rory, who's an elder midwife who has long had a vision of a birth center here in Roxbury. And so it was right around that time that she shared that vision with me. And it just kind of struck me like it was one of those moments where I heard nothing else after that, after she said, We've always wanted a birth center in Roxbury. And I was like, oh, wait, I think I can I can I help you with that? Can I? And so the next several months were about figuring out how stepping into that could could be a role I could play. Um, and so I, I asked her and others for their blessing to say the data is different now. There are many more studies available. So this is in 2014 to 2015. And I think it's like we might you know, try this again in Boston. They had tried um, in the 80s and were met with a lot of resistance. And so I think that kind of brings me here and we can talk later about how this has morphed from that very nascent volunteer project to what it is now with um, Catherine and I and, and one other person on staff. Yeah, so I'm a public health person. I'm not clinically trained and I bring like a deep reverence for midwives from my personal life uh, to this. And then I bring some like administrative chops. And um, I think some parts boldness, some parts naivete, and just really sure that like, we've got to make the path by walking. So I love that. That is a beautiful expression. I feel like we should call this episode, the room next door. <laughs> That's a really wonderful origin story. So my first mentor was actually Shafia Monroe, who was a midwife in Roxbury. My first yes. prenatal care, my Mama Shafia, Mama Shafia, mm -hmm. all my first midwifery, everything happened in Roxbury. Oh, I just got I, goosebumps. She is amazing. But it's really powerful when your origin story is birth out of the hospital. It gives you a completely different perspective on what's possible. Yeah. So that was Nashira. Catherine, will you tell us how you got here to... Yes, certainly. So I was born in England. I came here as a little girl, so I have lost the accent. So there's no hints of it. But so I have some international or, you know, international origin. And with that, my parents were both born with midwives who arrived on bicycles at their house. So my mom's mom had four babies at home. My dad's mom had five babies at home. And so Again, and I think there was nothing remarkable about that. That's how women in the 50s gave birth in the UK. The other thing I want to be clear about, like when I talked, when I used to talk to my grandmothers, that was not exactly a version of empowered birth either. I don't think any of them, I, either of them had particularly like warm memories of it or we don't want to like over glorify home birth. But like the point was that for low-income women, which they were, there were no options. And so that's what, you know, my my dad's mom just said, you just got on with it, was how she described the birth experiences. But obviously having that as a background, that there was a different way of doing healthcare and there's a different way of doing birth, obviously just, you know, informed throughout my, you know, through my life. And in college, I decided I want to get into healthcare. And I ended up writing a thesis about teen pregnancy, about the cultural understanding of teen pregnancy and um, interviewed midwives actually at Boston Medical Center in the Bronx and in Washington Heights. And the way they spoke about their work, the way they spoke about their patients, their understanding of the social structures, it was just a perfect fit. It was like where feminism now health, healthcare, and it has been a perfect fit for me. So my entire clinical life and experience has been hospital-based birth. I worked at Mass General, which is a really large academic institution. I was there for over 10 years. I um, worked in the community health centers and it worked for me for a long time. And I think it was the confluence, I think, having worked then on the front lines through COVID in a deeply impacted community. And then the following year, the movement for Black Lives and the conversations and protests after the murder of George Floyd really felt like I was just getting to the edge of you know, what I felt like my work could be. Like if there was only so long, I really wanted to stay in a system that I, I felt ultimately was inequitable. And luckily, Nishir and I had crossed paths several times over the years and it, and the timing was right for both of us. And it just felt for professional reasons, for personal reasons, for political reasons, that I wanted to go to an organization that was following the lead of Black women that had health equity at its center and really was reimagining how a system could work. 
And um, it's been a total privilege to, to join the work with Nishira. One of the things you said, Catherine, got me thinking, which is not to romanticize home birth. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of talking about this call the midwives. I'm sure some people have seen called midwives, bicycle midwife model. You know, when I was first becoming a midwife, it was back in 81 that I first started studying. At first, people were like, you're becoming a what? We still have those. And the answer was, well, really not that many, actually. But there was this huge association that it was this very sort of hippie backwater thing. And I think, you know, you're highlighting something actually that isn't romanticized. And even when we don't romanticize it, even when we don't come from this, like, we're going to light candles and have sparkle lights and chant and do ritual and all of this like thing that people associate with these sort of counterculturally different births, it, mm-hmm. it actually is a still a very normative way of having a baby safely, even with all of that stuff. And I think that's actually really important because not everybody feels the association with all of that other stuff, but they still want to have their baby somewhere different. So I like that you highlighted that actually. Speaking of, I mean, not everyone really knows what a birthing center is. And sometimes to me that's surprising, but when we look at the data on how many are available, um, and especially in communities that probably need them the most, I apprenticed and studied and practiced in Georgia. Last year, I gave a talk to the legislative council at lunchtime. It was the House of Representatives, actually. And they still have over 90 counties, counties with absolutely zero OB-GYN care whatsoever. So it's not surprising that a lot of people don't know what they are. So can either or both of you share what a birthing center is and why it is its own place different from home or hospital and the importance of that? The two questions I get out, what is a midwife? What is a birth center? I mean, I think it, 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 as you said, it is not in the culture. And so it's not surprising that most people haven't heard of them. So- I just want to interject there. It, it, that's so U.S. specific, though, because like the, the majority of the globe has really maintained and invested in midwifery in ways that the U.S. has not. And even among economically advantaged countries, the U.S. falls way behind in our integration of midwives. So I just want to name that because like every other place, everyone's like, oh, yeah, like like you said about the U.K., like midwives are catching all the babies, right, in in other parts of the world. And I think that has everything to do with colonization and capitalism here. And we can get like more into that. But yeah, I just let's definitely talk. You're right. It's like here. Everyone's like, what's a midwife? When I talk about having home birth. People say like, oh, that's so non-traditional. And I'm like, well, I actually think that might be the most traditional way to give birth. But so the narrative and the frame um, is so important. There's so much there from systematic eradication of midwives and especially black midwives. That was intentional. Yes, it's very systematic. I mean, this is easily traceable without having to go into like some underweb of history. It's just all right there. You talked about lagging behind and having midwives. I mean, the lagging behind and having midwives is parallel to the lagging behind in maternal and infant mortality. And it's not just westernized colonizing countries like England and France and Germany that have these better stats. I mean, we actually are at the bottom of the barrel globally, even amongst countries that are much more sort of modern resource poor. Absolutely. Astonishing. Yeah. I would always get the comment when I had my kids at home in the 80s and 90s. They were born back then. And, oh, you're so brave. Mm-hmm. And I would always be like, mm, I don't think so. I was actually felt safer at home. It didn't feel braver. It felt safer. Absolutely. Yeah. For me, for me and my, you know, who I am. And no, and I, I, I live in. Yeah, I, I think actually, you know, I mean, I, I hear this all the time where people are like, oh, I wanted a midwife, but I didn't want to take a risk. Or, you know, I don't want any, you know, something bad to happen to me at home, you know, without being too, I don't want to sound too, too negative, but like, you know, the, for most people, the risk is seeing an obstetrician. That's where your risk of C-section comes in. The, where the, the driver of maternal mortality is coming out of is coming out of hospitals. And so it doesn't hang over the field of obstetrics and doesn't hang over hospitals in the way that 
that there's an assumption that midwifery and community birth are inherent. Yeah. And hospitals don't get shut down when they have a bad outcome and birth centers do. So the wow. risk is just, yeah. So Catherine, what is a birth center? What is a birth center? <laughs> let's, let's talk about that. And then let's swing back so, around to this concept yeah. of risk, because that really affects who can birth at birthing centers. Yeah. So a birth center is, um, people describe it differently, some, you know, some home-like or spa-like, but it is outside of a traditional hospital. It's like a separate location where people can access full-scope midwifery care. And so certainly it is, you know, people will know it most for, you know, prenatal care and, and giving birth. But, you know, midwives are full-scope reproductive and sexual health providers. So people can also go there for their lactation support for their family planning, for their gynecology, for their infertility workup. And so, but it really, it's, it's midwifery led and it is purposefully separated from hospital um, structures and systems. Do you want to add on to, to that, Michelle? Yeah. I mean, I think um, just to weave a little bit about what we were talking about, about the context here in Massachusetts, that um, there's one community birth center in the state. It's about two hours away in Northampton, Seven Sisters. And um, the other two birth centers in the state are hospital run and are either facing closure or have closed. And so I think that the the data um, about the nearly 400 birth centers in the country, that is collected by the American Association of Birth Centers, and that is about freestanding birth centers, and that would include all of those hospital-owned and led birth centers. The number of birth centers that are community-based is even smaller, and then the number of birth centers that are for, uh, nonprofits is even smaller than that. And we can get into to the why about that, but I I think that is an important distinction because there are some hospital-based um, birth centers that are counted among those and still are distinct in some ways than the, so than the model that would we're be, planning. What would be some of the political and actual differences that a person who's birthing or getting their prenatal care, postpartum care might experience with those different ownership strategies for birthing centers, whether it's hospital-based, independently owned, or midwife-owned? So different states are going to set up different regulations in terms of the independence of their midwives. In Massachusetts here, we have full independent practice. That means that I don't need any physician supervision of my visits, of my births, of my charting, of my vacations. And there are other states that have very intense supervisory trust, you know, where basically like you need to get like all these boxes ticked by a physician if you are a midwife. And that just to clarify too, because there are lots of different kinds of midwives. So you're referring specifically to certified nurse midwives. Yeah. I mean, and even that is different in different states. Right. So here in Massachusetts, part of what, sorry, this is sort of my blind spot because certified nurse midwives who've gone through nursing and then get a master's degree are the only licensed midwives in the state. Whereas if you looked in, you know, Washington or, um, um, Oregon, you would find certified nurse midwives, you find certified professional midwives who kind of, kind of go through more either an education program or apprenticeship model, but really are the experts in out of what we call community births or out of hospital birth and certified midwives. So people who haven't, you know, who are, haven't gone through sort of the nursing route. But again, it, there is nothing cohesive about this, the, the regulations around midwife rate or their um, independence. Um, across all states. And I was talking to a midwife from Can a friend, friend of mine who's a midwife in Canada. It is one licensure, it is one system, and they're cross-trained in home birth, birth center birth, hospital birth. And they're trained in the European model, which is direct entry midwifery. So you yeah. don't actually have to get a master's or anything in nursing. That's right. And that's I think is important too because the freedoms that certified nurse midwives have been given, if you will, by the medical model are predicated on the fact that the medical model still says, okay, well, we trained them as nurses first. That's right. So it still has this little overlay, even though, of course, certified nurse midwives are very woman-centered and independent. There's still it's, that it's, difference. Yeah. And it's explicitly a white supremacist history because at the time that Black and Indigenous midwives were being eradicated and phased out and made illegal, white women who were nurses were kind of allowed to stay in it. 
And so that's why the nurse midwife is it is an American concept that they're not they're not linked in other countries. And people would look at you strangely if you had, you know, two degrees. But it, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of ways this has developed that is as you know, as we want to kind of reemphasize this is American specific. This is and not- it's like birth as a medical event versus in other countries. Right. Birth is a birth. It's a natural maternal health event with midwives trained in emergency support as needed for mom and baby. So if you have a birthing center, let's say in a state like Massachusetts, where CNM certified nurse midwives, for those of you who are listening, don't know that acronym are licensed and autonomous. How is that birthing center different? And what is different about, for example, what you all are talking about setting up versus a hospital associated like Cambridge Birthing Center, which I was, I worked at Cambridge Hospital there. So I'm really familiar with that birthing center. So there are two disconnects, I think, in Massachusetts. There's what we have in our, in our regulations, our nursing regulations, honestly, which is, which is the independent practice. And then there is what the Department of Public Health has set out for birth centers. So they're out of line. So they say, yeah, sure, you might have independent practice, but you're going to have to bring on a medical director. And that medical director has to be a physician, either a family physician or an OBGYN. And there are fantastic, like, allied OBGYNs out there who would be wonderful partners in this. However, hardly any OBGYNs have any out-of-hospital birth experience. So the concept they're there is there for their expertise is, is strange. And the second thing is, and I think this is where the bursting has become very vulnerable. Okay, you set it up with, you know, Dr. A, who was lovely and supportive and, and totally got the model. There's a change in leadership. Who was trained in Canada or Ireland or yeah, somewhere yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. There's a Colorado and, or New Mexico. Yeah, and someone, else comes, yeah. and someone else comes in. And there are examples of this where basically it is, it's a little bit the whim of whoever is in the OBGYN leadership at that point. On, and they're making major decisions. They're they're saying this person is precluded from birth center care. Midwives can no longer do VBAC. Well, you know, like I mean, and whether there's evidence behind it or not, they have that power to decree that. And so, you or another example is that they require a birth center policy of fetal monitoring, which actually, in the case here, means that the birth center will lose its credentials, um, its accreditation, I should say. So. There are decisions that certainly are still held in the medical industrial complex and the hospital system specifically that really impact community birth. And uh, impact outcomes. So we would actually change the positive outcomes of birthing centers by making them more hospital-like with things like requiring monitoring. You know, it's interesting. One of the studies you cited was the Strong Start study. And so that is a Medicaid recipient. So again, people that probably economically and um, socioeconomically are, are at risk for higher, higher complications. The outcomes are astonishing. They are astonishing. We have the, the medication we use for preventing preterm birth, which is called Mekena, you know, has, has probably show, has shown to be to, like useless. And you have a model that can reduce preterm birth by 26%. That can reduce cesarean by forty percent. But I don't know so, what the investment in that drug was, but I know it was significant. And just to like foreshadow to, to another challenge of ours is like that we're fundraising to open a birth center when that level of investment, like what we need to open Boston's first birth center, is probably a rounding error for that pharmaceutical company, yeah. right? So the, what a disconnect there in our investment. And so. You know, and obviously that study wasn't able to pull out, like, what is it about birth center care? Is it the longer visits? Is it the approach to physiologic birth? Is it the patient education? Like that study might come and say, like, what of these is the actual intervention we want to do so we can replicate it maybe in a hospital system. But it's a little bit like, why, why disrupt it? That is the model. We have a model that works and that model needs to be scaled. So let's talk about why somebody would have a birthing center birth or birthing center prenatal birth postpartum care. What is the difference or what are some of the differences that you feel are most important to highlight that someone who's listening who either hasn't heard of a birthing center before or maybe heard of it, but they're like, I don't really know why I would go there. You know, my insurance covers hospital birth. I'm not into midwives. That sounds kind of, I don't know, old school to me. Talk to me about why you're telling me I'm at a party and you are opening a birthing center. I'm a little bit like, "Mm, 
Okay, that's interesting, but mm, why would I do that? I feel like it's the case for midwives, which I'll let Catherine make, but I, I just want to go to the insurance part first, which is, you know, licensed midwives can catch babies at birth centers fully covered by insurance. And so our model is really committed to, you know, working really hard to be in network with all of the payers in the state and to have a, a business model that uh, makes sure that we serve 50% mass health, which is our Medicaid population here. And so, um, so I would just like strike that off the list. Like, like this is a model that is really covered by insurance, um, not to mention, you know, all of the outcomes, both in terms of, you know, the birthing parent and the and the newborn better outcomes, but also experiences of feeling a sense of agency and power. And as someone who has given birth at home twice and with with midwives, I feel like there's a way that I touched my power that completely transformed me on like a cellular level and 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 has allowed me to to do this work right that that boldness that i mentioned earlier is directly related to the sense of agency that i felt and i conversely have been in the room with friends uh in labor in the hospital where they do not have a, a feeling of a sense of power and agency and transformation and in fact either through their experience or through real bad outcomes, have a sense of trauma and um, a real sadness and a real longing and grief. And so I think that that really changes how we move through the world, how we parent, how we, you know, just move through the world in all of the ways um, on, on either side of of such a, a, a an experience as giving birth. So I just think a lot about what's possible for, for individuals and for us collectively. Yes, we all as pregnant people, people anticipating getting pregnant, people going into labor, we we ultimately want what is safest for our baby. And we want to be there safe at the other side of it too. And I think we make a lot of decisions in this country erroneously based on the assumption that obstetric care is actually what's providing that greater safety. And that's actually not true. It is erroneous. Midwives birthing centers, out-of-hospital births environments provide that greater safety. And I think as birthing people, we have so traded this false sense of safety for experience, right? So, I mean, when I'm trained in, I'm trained as a midwife and I'm trained in family medicine with obstetrics. So I rotate through regular OB-GYN training programs as part of my family medicine residency in obstetrics. And what's the adage? A healthy mom and a healthy baby. But we have a very narrowly defined physiologic definition of what that is. And now we're looking at a culture where 7 to 14% of people who birth in the hospital are reporting or able to be diagnosed with PTSD from their birth experience. I'm not saying that every midwife, every non-obstetric birth provider is a soft, safe person. There's all kinds of people in all kinds of professions. But statistically, I think the midwife model of care has such a different role in nurturing the safety and the experience. So I wonder if you can talk about as your, you know, both Nashira from your experiences, Catherine, your experiences with birth, but what you're trying to foster in the birthing center. What about the experience is also different from a really deep Mm -hmm. being heard, being seen? Like, I mean, I took 80 minutes was a typical prenatal with me, not 10 minutes where you can't get Mm -hmm. your question answered and you're treated like you're irritating the OB who's already looking at their watch. Right. To go, and I'm saying yeah. this as someone yeah. who's trained in that model. Right? Our our big vision is equitable access to midwifery, right? And I there's I have this T-shirt: midwives' places in the home, in the birth center, in the hospital, and just like statistically speaking, the vast majority of folks who birth in the hospital could safely birth outside of the hospital. What we're going to be able to provide in Boston in terms of scope is like 200 births a year, right? Which is what one of our big teaching hospitals does in a week. So the majority of our community is still going to birth inside the hospital. And so I'm, I'm always aware of like our, our quest to open a birth center is not explicitly anti-hospital. In fact, we really want the hospitals to get their stuff together and to invest in midwives to make sure that the hospital midwives are 
taken care of, that, that they have the space to, to do the sacred work of midwifery. And many people are going to risk out of birth center, either opt out, never, right, or risk out. And so I just wanted to kind of name that, like, our hope is that people have robust access to midwives, even deep inside the hospital, when they have to work side by side with, you know, an MFM or, or like, right, an OB or, so I just, um, I just wanted to name that. because I, I we don't want also- to create a sense of fear or oppositionality. It's more like, we have to really name the power of midwives and the power of birthing centers to be the model for what should like, actually yes, be happening. Go choose, in, yeah. go choose the Brigham and yes. find yourself a midwife. Yeah, yes. I think right. <laughs> I've even like, I mean, I think you're feeling that I had a, I had a, oh my gosh, I had a friend. She had two babies with her midwives. I caught her first baby. And I never knew this is how she thought about it. She's like, I knew I, I knew I was a risk, but it was important for my experience. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't believe you went through the whole pregnancy, you went through two births. And there were part of you that thought you had taken a risk and that you had made this kind of slightly selfish decision. And I think that pitting experience versus safety is, 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 as you said, is a completely false paradigm. So I wanted to say I had, as, as a hospital-based midwife, there are people I could take care of in a hospital system that deserved midwifery care that probably would not be appropriate for birth center care. Mm -hmm. So these might be people who are with substance use disorders who are on methadone or Subutex, you know, this might be women who have high blood pressure. This might be people with diabetes, Mm -hmm. depending on where you are and what your risk factors are. This might be people trying for a vaginal birth after cesarean. I mean, and that's, that can be a high risk labor, but they deserve midwifery care and they benefit from midwifery care. And so that's what you kind of, that's what's a, that's a great example of the best use of hospital-based midwifery care. That being said, because of the systems, because of the need for profit and the high overheads and all this thing, I would show up in the clinic in the morning and I have 25 patients in a day, or I would go to a different clinic and I would see 35 patients in a day. I tried very hard. I worked very hard. There is no way that is providing the kind of care that is answering people's questions, that's encouraging shared decision-making, that is providing patient education. And I think that would be a reason for, you know, when you look at a birth center is the, the one of the key parts of the model is it, part of why it's low volume is that you can extend the period of time you spend with people. And that yields amazing outcomes. There is a role for hospital-based midwifery. To be honest, you know, like there are, Boston area and Massachusetts hospitals with zero midwives. They have never offered midwifery. So you get this huge chasm in terms of what people's options and experience can be. When I was uh, applying for residencies, I started out applying to do OB-GYN and very quickly after a number of interviews at major, including Ivy League, Boston and Massachusetts and Connecticut and other hospitals, decided I was going to be a very unhappy person if I did OB-GYN. Um, so I switched to internal medicine and family medicine with obstetrics. So I, I can do the same things, but in a very different context. And I interviewed at one of the Boston hospitals and was explicitly told at my interview, don't worry, we don't have midwives here. So you'll, so the OB residents get to do more surgeries. And I was like, wow, I wish I had recorded that. It was the most telling statement. I was like, yeah, I will not be coming here. That's right. (laughs) Just run. talk about so many things, but one of the things that I really would love to dig into is, so when I was first in Atlanta, for example, um, in the early mid eighties, the Atlanta birthing center was opening. It was very Mm -hmm. much, it was adjacent to the hospital. It was very hospital driven. It kind of, we would joke and say it was like a hospital behind veneer of nice cabinets, basically. And even that didn't last. But historically, like the Atlanta Birthing Center, birthing centers have sprung up in more wealthy, more white communities with more privileged access. And also, the the term low risk has come to bother me increasingly because one, we have internalized in our culture this idea that black and brown bodies are at higher risk of obstetric of of risk and and poor outcomes but there's nothing inherent about a black or brown body that is actually at higher risk it's totally inherent structural racism 
And we know that even people who are higher risk starting out at the gate, whether they may have a higher predisposition for gestational diabetes or hypertension or socioeconomic factors that put them at more risk, again, racism as part of that, but working with midwives actually reduces their risk of developing these problems. So how do we balance that and the need for more birthing centers with the fact that so many birthing centers have low risk cutoffs for care? What do we do? I think you're right. I think that there's no good definition of low risk and there is no particularly good definition of high risk. And I think therefore we need to go to like scope of practice and also what the evidence is saying. And the concept midwives do low risk is a way of explaining away the incredible midwifery outcomes. And I'm like, I've got a patient on magnesium. I have a patient with a trauma history. I have a patient who's homeless. Like the concept of those people were low risk and therefore there was nothing in my care that was contributing to their outcomes is I think a way of of dismissing what is the expertise of midwifery. Absolutely. Um, That is such a powerful statement. It really just says so much. Let's just like take that in. So obstetricians are saying midwives have good outcomes because you're handling the easy cases. Yeah. If you saw what we saw. Right. But the reality is because of structural racism and inequality, largely community health centers are staffed by midwives because they're an economical option. I think the sort of association that midwifery is inherently white, it is it's crunchy. It's, you know, drink your kombucha and, and go to your Whole Foods and or your red raspberry leaf. As yeah, is. like is is <laughs> it's actually not true on the ground. It's it's not how most midwives practice, it's not where most midwives practice, but I think has become a way of dismissing the field. I'm gonna share what are your what are your thoughts when you hear about that about low risk? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I just wanted to pick up there on the back to how deeply white supremacy culture has has shaped this, right? That folks are opting for obstetrics because there's such a sense that that's the the superior model, right? Often to like our own demise, right? So I just think that there's some, you know, very powerful remnants of the economic campaign to move birth from community, from the home inside the hospital and to create pathways to attend births for obstetricians and mostly white male obstetricians is just still like very much, very much here, right? That, 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 Reality is still very much here. I wanted to go back to where the birth centers are and how mm-hmm. and how they get started, and because I think that that's so important to what we know from a, a um, survey that was done by the American Association of Birth Centers is that eighty-seven uh, percent of birth centers in the country are for-profit models, and that's not inherently bad, but it, but it does mean that those birth centers, or that's because those birth centers have been started by midwives who had an existing practice and financed by that midwife's personal savings or lines of credit. So that midwife like took out a small business loan or remortgaged their home to open a birth center. And the folks who I know who have done that, that has strapped them. Like that is not, that is not a sustainable way to finance what is such a significant pillar of our healthcare infrastructure, right? Or what could be, given also the cost savings back to the system from the presence of that birth center. Um, What it also means is that we have to, one, go back to like who has access to midwifery. So if birth centers are started by midwives, we're like, well, who has had access to midwifery education, apprenticeship, and that 95% of midwives in this country are white cis women, and then who has access to capital to leverage? So with the, the racial redlining of, of wealth in this country, it's like you have to be a midwife and you have to have capital to open a birth center. Um, and then what happens oftentimes is that those birth centers then, because of the low reimbursement rate connected to midwifery, those birth centers and midwives say, you know what, we actually need to be cash pay only or can only take private insurance or very limited insurance. We absolutely cannot actually afford, given the debt that we're in to open this, to take Medicaid patients. And so we really double down on the inequity of who gets to open a birth center and who gets access to a birth center. And so kind of knowing that, like that's the data that we went into this experiment with to say, how do we move forward a nonprofit model that 
is really committed to equitable access to birth center care. So how do we make sure that both where we're located geographically um, in the heart of Boston's Black community, but also that we're committing to 50% Medicaid patients help to meet some of that. And so we're backing in with our, or we're leading with our values. And what that means then is that the the business model is askew, right? It's a huge challenge. And so where we are is then looking to philanthropy to really help close that gap created by colonization and white supremacy um, that has undervalued midwifery systemically while we are concurrently working on all of the policy levers, which is why I'm so glad that Catherine is here as our policy director, all of the policy levers to make birth centers more sustainable, right? That, that midwives who work outside of the hospital and birth centers should not you know, earn 30% less than midwives who work in the hospital that payers should be reimbursing birth center care um, at the same rate that they're reimbursing inside the big systems, right? But we don't have the same negotiating power with payers. So there's all of these policy levers that are kind of maintaining this inequity and making it really hard for birth centers to be viable and sustainable. And the last thing I want to say about this kind of where I feel like there adds insult to injury is so that's the model we have we're facing this kind of huge gap that we're working to meet philanthropically by having house parties in the community and having you know online donations but the presence of birth centers creates huge savings back to the healthcare system so if just 10% of births were moved from the hospital to birth centers the us would save 1.9 billion dollars annually so like, so given that we're out here having like, a house party, right? I'm, I'm always like, I'm always really scratching my head on so many aspects of a system that is hugely in debt, hugely ineffective and inefficient. We're always talking about a broken healthcare system, right? We hear it everywhere. We hear it from people in the system. And yet we have so many different ways that we can reduce costs like birthing centers. And yet we're not investing there. What do you think yeah. that gap is? I can't I understand think, it. Honestly, I think this is what, when you don't have a single payer system, you kind of don't have any oversight in terms of cost, the spending. So what happens in a hospital system is they will have conversations explicit about generating profit. And so there is an incentive, and I and it and it plays out consciously and subconsciously, but there is an incentive to high, have high intervention births. You are going to get paid almost double for cesarean section what you get paid for a vaginal birth. The big money makers for hospitals would be things like epidurals, would be hospital stays. Honest to God, it'd be NICU stays. NICUs, yep. And it's not. Again, it's not that there is like some evil, like mustache twirling obstetrician out there that's like, oh, you know, but what it means is that there's no checks and balances on that system, that there's really no innovation around what could what could save money here. It is all about how to keep the lights on. Right. And so it's very hard to get a hospital system to to want to invest in that. Some places have more luck with payers. They've been like, hey, if you cover doula care, you decrease the cesarean section rate by this much, you increase your breastfeeding by this much. And so some payers have, have gone for that. But again, I think there's we have such a siloed piecemeal health system that there's nothing, there's nothing even consistent about the payers of Massachusetts around that. And we, we live in a tiny state. So I do think I think that the drive for profit gets in the way of, of the evidence. The evidence can live there for decades. I just want to add in that the word evidence is very stretchy and squidgy when it comes to obstetrics. So you can have an entirely different C-section rate by state, yep. by county, by town, by hospital. We know that C-section rates shift based on availability of reimbursement. That's not evidence. That's probably yeah. Whether it's a Friday night. Yep. Yep. So again, I agree with you. I mean, it's not, and you know, like I said, I, as a physician, you know, you go to Yale, you're kind of invited into the boys club, even though OB is still 50, 50 is now 50, 50 men and women. The model is still very much that sort of white male heteropatriarchy. It's there. And we are actually not 
explicitly incentivized to do things like more cesareans. And in fact, in family medicine, we we try not to. But we are incentivized. I mean, I remember being even a medical student and we were given financial incentives. They were ridiculous. It was like a little credit at the cafe. But when you're a medical student, caffeine is important. We're actually given incentives to, for example, get patients discharged by 10 in the morning. So if that postpartum patient was maybe not quite so ready to go, or maybe that new mama was not ready to leave her baby who was still in the hospital or whatever the scenario was, we were actually still incentivized to get that bed empty so it could be refilled by. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of private practices, a lot of practices go to um, our revenue model, RVUs. So you are going to be explicitly financially incentivized to pack your schedule to capacity and patient experience, equity, out the window. There's n- there's nothing there's nothing built into that that's going to yield better outcomes for for patients. Nasira, what is your vision for this birthing center? How it will shape the community, serve the community, support mm-hmm. the community? I mean, just to like bring us like and to bring listeners like really into what it could look and feel like. Like on the back of my eyelids, I can see and hear, I can hear the water running in like the most amazing birthing tub. I can see, you know, a, a queen size bed with, you know, linens and quilts. And I can see, you know, a birthing person and their their chosen family, their partner, their grandmother there. We're always like, I don't care if it's your capoeira teacher, like whoever is your people there holding you in support in this moment. And that the that those physical supports and and the the sacred work of of midwives create a container for people to do deep transformative work, and it's not only the birthing person who is transformed by the experience and outcomes and the better outcomes related for the newborn, it's also that grandmother, that partner, that capoeira teacher, that elder, that that four year old, as my four year old was by my side, who is transformed. And, and as I was transformed at age seven, believing that that's how babies are born, what I think is possible for our community is that deep re- remembering that, that four-year-olds in our community are going to be like, oh yeah, my, right, the room next door, my sibling was born in the room next door when I was four, when I was seven. And that, that, you know, connects us to, to all the possibility. I want that to be the narrative. I want that to be like, everyone, everyone knows someone. So, so I, my hope is that Two years after opening, everyone knows someone who's given birth at the birth center. And it becomes part of the like, oh, did you go to this hospital? Oh, no, I went to the birth center. And oh, yeah, I know my sister went to the birth center, my cousin. And and that, and someone got care there, had an amazing experience, had to transfer, but they're still a birth center patient. They're still a birth center family. So that it becomes a, a real kind of central both gathering space and space of healing. Because, and I'll just close by saying that that I'll use the example of the of the birthing person's, you know, parents. So that that grandmother there having had potentially a very different experience in their own birth, that there is some some healing that's possible for them too, that this opportunity, this this experience um heals maybe some trauma that they had and that they move forward from a place of saying, yeah. I also know someone who gave birth there and this is what it's like and this is what's possible for all of us. So really being a part of a narrative shift. And again, I think it's about increasing access to midwives in hospitals and at home as well. In Massachusetts, we have, I think 1% of births happen outside of the hospital at home. And um, we have one black home birth midwife in the state. So like there's a whole context that needs to shift, but I just, I want people to, to be like that birth experience was really, really dope. I want to do that again. Like my birth experiences were so powerful that if I had a willing partner, I'm like, yeah, sign me up for that again. I think also the Neighborhood Birth Center put together and created this like, beautiful video. It's called You Are Welcome with Love. And you can find it on our website or on YouTube. We'll link it up too. And I watched as a, as a midwife. Like, I mean, this is my day job, but you know, like my day and night job. Um, you know, like I watched it as someone who's been to hundreds of births and has been in the field. And I just watching, I the, truly cried and I have cried multiple times watching it. And just that feeling in your body of, oh my God, that's how it could be. That's how it could look. And I think for those of us who may have been pregnant, have given birth, have accessed sexual reproductive health care, for those of us who are survivors of trauma, 
you know what that feeling in your body is like when it is not feeling good and it is not feeling safe. And you know, when someone's using the right pronouns, when someone's using the right, you know, words around your body, when someone's asking permission and your consent to touch you, like, you know, just that ability to have access, not your, just your birth, but all of care in a way that feels inherently safe and honors your body. And I think there's just an incredible power to that. And again, I do, I think it's a little bit like, it's hard. It'll be hard. Once that genie's out of the bottle, it'll be hard to go back and tolerate care that is not that. And, um, and that's where, you know, that's where a few more neighborhood percentage will pop up. Well, and that's the thing to, to the point that you made at the start of Viva that like, we create this demand, right. And then it begins to like, you know, self-propel, right? That like, we actually need to open another birth center or that we need one, you know, in another part of the state to meet the demand that somebody begins to say. And it is unfortunate, again, in the context of resources and in the benefit to the, you know, the system that this is the pathway, but it also feels promising. And I guess just to connect it to our work fundraising for this, that like, as somebody who kind of came out of governmental public health and nonprofit, I just expected we would write a bunch of grants and have this like grant funded. And I have been surprised that, um, pleasantly surprised, but but that 90% of, of our first million dollars came from individuals, right? That like community has spoken their belief in this project. That is from $5 donations and up that people are saying, yeah, we want this. And so again, like, I, I just think that in spite of it all, we're going to like make this happen and we're going to like create another way of being for people. And, and our hope is, and our, our, our expectation I should frame is that systems and resources follow suit, right? I don't want to be fundraising for this for the next 10 years or into perpetuity, right? And we don't want to have to open the next birth center, you know, by having backyard fundraisers. But I do think that like, we launched this, we, you know, have proof of concept, it really catches on in, in community. And we can, we have a different way of negotiating with payers and having support from, from, frankly, hospitals and other institutions that are going to benefit from our presence, right? But all of our labs and ultrasound, like there's all of this stuff that is going to happen that is an inherent benefit to the institutions. And so um, we're really going to be looking to them to support now and not just be excited and come to our ribbon cutting when we open, right? We'll be like, where were you when we were? <laughs> I want to come to the ribbon cutting when you open. I'm super Please excited. come to the ribbon cutting. I will come to the ribbon cutting. Quick, before we wrap, I want to ask a question because so many people might be listening and going, oh yes, I want this. Or I had trauma and I want to do it differently next time. But there isn't a birthing center where I live. What what are your thoughts for folks who are really kind of turned on by what we're saying? They're like, I want this, but I don't know what where to go and get this kind of care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have that conversation a lot. And I think because, you know, you don't want to set people up for failure or for tension or for conflict in their births when really their only option is the hospital. I would say certainly for lots of people, there should be a midwifery option somewhere somewhere for, you know, for a lot of people. And I think looking for midwifery would be important, even if you have to end, even if it's going to be hospital-based. The other thing that I'd really encourage people can do is, is a doula, someone that is going to be there to support you through the pregnancy, through the birth, through the postpartum period. Doulas do, you know, as I said, some insurances cover them. There are some free doula programs, some doulas do sliding scale, but that's going to sort of develop advocacy and then the final thing I do think is, you know, is, is looking at, you know, there are things like on babycenter.com, like birth planning, you know, educate yourself, surround yourself with really positive birth stories. And therefore you might be seeing an OBGYN and you, you take your time to be like, do you have a mirror for when I give birth? Do you have a birth ball? Do you have, can I get in the shower? What's your intermittent monitoring policy? So that you really can go in there with an informed understanding of what the birth options are because sometimes I talk to and there you know there can be sometimes very well-educated friends and I'll I can't, like I'll mention something like I watched my baby be born because I had to I had you know I asked for a mirror and they were like I didn't know I could do that and you know it's so basic and it would be so instinctive for most midwives but you know you know these things that people yeah. would have loved to, to have been offered and I think that would be my advice I think for people who are looking kind of a more again, like where there's just, 
exactly as you said, where there there aren't the 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 optimal options, the ideal options may not be there. I just wanted to add, you know, that that social media has really changed the conversation for us, even in the last, you know, five to seven years that we've been working on this, right? That I always like anticipated having to, you know, bring people along to like this thing that is otherwise for crunchy white women and what, and like, but like people are calling us now. Everyone's like, you know, there's birth photography. There's like all of these amazing, you know, birth without fear and all of these accounts and hashtags that are allowing us to have access to another um, another image and another narrative. And I think that that's really important. Like I have a friend who I shared a bunch of those posts on social media with recently, and they ended up having a, a planned C-section because they they needed one legitimately. But the the sense of what was possible, that they could ask for immediate skin to skin, that that was transmitted through kind of scrolling. And, and, and I think that we just didn't have access to other stories. So we kind of- Yeah, we that- try to post one beautiful- birth video a week yes and it's, just it's say, making such a difference. difference that's possible we were talking about birth trauma just to emphasize we've talked about that a lot and i don't want that to add to the mm-hmm. trauma story to say that it's all the data that we look at on birth trauma really is not so much about where someone births or how they birth in terms of like is it a cesarean is it forceps mm-hmm. it's the communication and the respect and the autonomy and agency right. in the process. So all the things that you're talking about, about being educated and doing the research is really so much at the heart of it and having someone there who can be an advocate. Nishir, I want to ask if we have time for one question. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in some of the data that you shared with me um, to get ready for the interview that of the 400 some odd birthing centers in the U.S., only 13 are led by people of color. And also we know very clearly from data that Black people cared for by Black medical providers, Black babies cared for by Black medical providers have undoubtedly better outcomes. So for folks who are listening, who are thinking about birth work, and especially people of color, women of color who are thinking about birth work, can you share some thoughts and inspiration? And also, you know, you're you're a birth worker and you went into the system to get some of these skills to be able to implement some of the change. So what can you say to inspire more folks to go into birth work? Um, I mean, just that we need you. Like there are birth centers emerging, birth centers led by folks of color in communities of color, really designed to meet the inequity emerging all over the country. We're calling, we're calling you to come and step into birth work and into community birth work. And the the apprenticeship, the mentorship is there. There are midwives around the country. I'm on a text thread with 30 midwives of color who are leading birth centers. And there's this constant thread of like, where can I get another student midwife? And so, you know, the the desire, the deep and like past, like through our lineage, the the apprenticeship model is here and, and Black midwives are here to support um, passing that on and are really eager to do that. So I just, I want to convey like a, a deep calling and longing to folks to step into birth work. One of our um, team members, Jesse, is um, applying to midwifery school and you know, is clear that like she will go and get some hospital experience and and then come work at a birth center, at our birth center, we hope. And that, you know, there is a value there. There, there are undoubtedly important skills and things learned in that setting. And so I think it's not like an either or, but it's, you know, one of the, the midwives that I just like deeply admire, Sada Flores, um, in California, like has done home birth, birth center, hospital, like that is a well-rounded midwife, right? And so that's my hope is that people feel like they can access education and training and experience all over and then, you know, really bring that to bear in ways that expand in an equitable way, access to community-based midwifery. So so for folks who want to support you, whether they're in Massachusetts or elsewhere, just want to get behind what you're doing, whether emotionally, volunteer-wise, or even financially, what what do you need and where can we, we'll link up, but what are the yeah. needs and how can folks reach out right now? Thank you. So, I mean, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't lead with fundraising. Like we are a um, million dollars into uh, what is a three or $3.5 million capital campaign. And um, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of 
um, monthly donors at five and $25 a month, that, that has gone a long way for us. And those dollars are literally, we're in a campaign right now where every dollar goes to the purchase and renovation of our space. And so, you know, donate link on our website and then really following and amplifying on social media, Neighborhood Birth Center, as well as Birth Center Equity, which is the national strategy and then the network that I mentioned of birth center leaders of color across the country. Following and sharing goes a long way, and it, it it contributes to that narrative shift that we were talking about, that people in your network begin to see that and say, wait, what's a birth center? And follow a hashtag, you know, hashtag community midwifery, hashtag birth center for every community down a rabbit hole and, and get connected to um, to different stories and, and different narratives. So, so um, for everyone listening, you can go to avivaram.com, why we need birthing centers, and we will have all the links to all the organizations, we will put a link to fundraising support and how to reach out to these two incredible women who are changing birth narrative and changing birth for folks in their communities. I can't thank you enough for being here, mm -hmm. Catherine and Nashira, Nashira and Catherine, for the work you're doing. I'm really excited to maybe have you back in two years with some of your families who are like, yeah, I did that or I heard about it. And Yes. I'm, put, I'm putting that intention out yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Back yeah. to the goosebumps. Yeah. I love that it's intention. So special. Yeah. And uh, and before that, we'll have you out at the ribbon cutting. Oh, I'm so excited. We'll take some yeah. video of that and put it on Instagram. So, oh, yes. All Thank right, you everyone. so much. Oh, total pleasure. Everyone who's listening, I hope this has been food for thought. Thank you for taking care of your mind and your body and yourself for being here and pass on the message. Even if you're a grandmother or you're an auntie or you never plan on having children, you never know who you pass something on to that it could really change their life. I'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.